All right, today we are, surprisingly, going to continue with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We had recently finished uh, Element 6, and because that took us, uh, I think it was around 72 messages, I decided before we go on to Element 7 to do a review and I'm going to try to do uh, the review in such a way that we don't spend more than one week on an, any one element going through here. Now, I don't know if I can pull that off or not, because um, uh, when we get into elements, uh, especially four and five, we spent over 20 weeks on each of those, in, uh, or I think five and six, four or five, maybe, maybe all three of them. I don't know. So... Uh, we'll see. Hopefully I can summarize what we covered in one week. Today what I'm going to try to do is, is introduce you to a concept called worldviews, which most Christians uh, have some idea of, but I'm going to give you a more exact definition than you're probably used to. And then I'm going to uh, explain how that relates to this eight essential elements of the Christ Biblical Christian Gospel series, because the first three elements we're talking about are the components of a worldview. Okay, so um, then we'll be uh, reviewing essential element number one, which is the attributes of God. Now, if you look at Roman numeral one on your outline, those, those are the eight elements with uh, an element zero, which we covered last week, which was kind of our introduction. And that's reviewed in Roman numeral two on your outline, but I'm not going to spend any time on it so I can save my time for the, the rest. Um, so you, if you, if any of those, uh, subjects prick your ears and you haven't heard, if you're new to this or whatever, we, all of these are on podcast. There's a, uh, an email address at the end of your outline that you can email my assistant, Stephen Leopold back there, and, uh, he will email you the outlines and you can listen to the podcast with or without the outlines. And so, um... If you, for some reason, don't have the technology to listen uh, as a podcast and you want it made into a CD, uh, all you have to do is request that from any of the sound guys, two of whom are back there in the last row right now. All right, so um, so we're skipping all the way to, uh, to Roman numeral three, right where your hole is paper-punching part of Roman numeral three, probably. So today, uh, we, I just want to make the... the statement that everyone has a worldview whether they know it or not. In modern times, in among non-Christians, many people hold their worldview unconsciously. That is, they're not necessarily even familiar with the concept of a worldview, but even if they are, they would have uh, assumptions, axioms, and postulates, things that they assume axiomatically or assume to be true without necessarily having ever thought them through, or without any evidence, and they've built an entire reality on these ideas, but they may not be aware of that. Okay, so that's an important thing to know when you're when you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, or even most Christians today have kind of been par partially converted, in the sense of they kind of intellectually assent to the ideas of the faith, but they really w wouldn't have had what what the uh, the Bible would give us as a full conversion. And that would be, unfortunately, um, maybe as high as 90% of people attending evangelical churches. Certainly maybe 60, 70%. Would, I, I don't know. I don't uh, 
have statistics on that. Um, clearly, we're in kind of a crisis. That's, you know, the gro mo most uh, growing genre of literature in evangelical circles today is, is the crisis in evangelicalism and the shallowness. And, you know, people are saying that it's miles wide but an inch deep. And um, So, you know, one of these things we're trying to do, the gospel, you just need to understand, is not just for leading people to Christ, but it's for you to live by every day. You have to reorient yourself in terms of Christ and his ascension, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, his coronation, and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and what all that means for us as Christians every day. And so, uh, you know, why would you do a series on the gospel that's going to take about 125 messages? Because it's something you should actually be studying your whole Christian life. You should be growing in your understanding of the gospel every day. Now, obviously you're not going to present uh, 125 messages or so to, uh, to someone who's considering becoming a Christian, so that's why you need to be able to kind of understand sort of the overview, which is why I'm going back and reviewing some of this. So every worldview, uh, the, the reason people have a worldview is, is a concept that Christians would call theologically the Imago Dei. Simply, you've been made in the image of God. So people are inescapably religious. They worship, whether they know it or not. And they have ideas about who or what is ultimately real, what life is all about, what is the nature and value of mankind, how should we treat each other? People have very strong ideas about how we should treat each other and whether politics can do any good or not or whether we need more education or more money for education. People have strong ideas about these things. And they all proceed out of their religious presuppositions about the nature of reality. So, this is something that if you don't have memorized... You should have memorized. Most, um, most Christian colleges and so forth, and when talking about worldviews, will talk about a word that maybe should be called zeitgeist, which is the German word, or milieu, which is a French word. Kind of the general philosophies and spirit and time period of an age and its assumptions about reality and so forth. That's okay. That's, but it's, what I'd like to do is give you a little bit more precise definition and if you can kind of work, memorize that, when you're working with people, you can ask them questions to draw out their worldview. And if you'll, if, as we've already pointed out in, in uh, element zero, when we compared Peter's address in Acts 2 to, to Paul's address in Acts 17 to the Athenians, you need to tailor what you're saying to your audience. Uh, you may not have to, we're, we're going to review the attributes of God today, which you may not need to do as much if you're talking to someone who has a firm Judeo-Christian idea of God in their mind and heart. But they may have a reduced version of, of, of a monotheistic God in their hearts, and you may need to address that. So it's important to, be, to kind of love who you're talking to well enough to draw them out, ask them questions, let them share who they are, what they believe. Now, because we're made in the image of God, we're inescapably religious, and we have answers in our mind to the big questions of life. And here are the three components that all worldviews have. Number one, who or what is ultimately real? 
Now, my classes at Sinclair, I always say, why do we have to have a who or what? Because for Christians, it's a who, right? We believe in a personal triune God that created the universe. We believe in who is ultimately real. But a non-Christian may believe in what is ultimately real. If they believe in some Eastern religion, such as Buddhism or Star Wars theology, the force be with you or whatever, uh, they believe in a non-personal entity. And in fact, part of achieving salvation in a Buddhist thing is to kind of get uh, you know, reach nirvana and oneness with the, with the cosmic impersonal spirit in such a way that you no longer have personality, passions, or desires. So um, that's a quite different vision than the Christian that you want to maximize your personalities, passions, and desires, except uh, hold them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So everyone will ask who or what is ultimately real, which necessitates how did it all begin? How did we get here? Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but there's five basic positions there. One is pantheism, that everything is God. Eastern religions, including Hinduism and Buddhism, tend to believe that. Uh, polytheism, that there's many gods, like most of the ancient middle cultures have believed. Incas, Mes you know, Mesopotamians, Greeks, Romans, uh, Egyptians, etc. Uh, many gods... Um, of course, theism, which is the belief that there's one God, Judaism and Christianity, and possibly you could argue Islam believes that, although you could argue that Islam is not monotheistic, depending on if you look deep enough into its origins. And then thirdly, uh, or fourthly, is uh, naturalism, that, that material matter is eternally existent. Now that's quite different than a Christian position, because we believe God created matter, ex nihilo. He is an eternal, personal spirit. And he created the time-space continuum, including the creation of matter. And there was no material dimension until he said so. Now, that works better with the second law of thermodynamics, because matter uh, increasingly breaks down into less and less harnessable forms, can't be created or destroyed, but it continually disintegrates and, and, and releases its energy and so forth. And so had, if it was universal, uh, then it would have to be non-existent because eventually it would release all its energies and so forth, uh, or at least be non-harnessable. Um, so uh, obviously, you know, it, it's kind of illogical to believe matter didn't start at a point in time, frankly. But um, secondly, every worldview has a second component, which is basically who or what is, or is the intrinsic nature of man. In other words, are, are you born, are human beings born with certain psychological components, certain um, tendencies uh, in exact nature? Are we... Are we just some nondescript, undefined thing 
Uh, in Latin, they call it a tabula rasa, like we just come in the world as a blank, blank slate, or are we predisposed towards seven, several things? So in terms of what is the nature of man, you ask three questions, and they're all listed on your outline. Do we have an ethical predisposition? Does man have a moral nature? So the Christian answer is we are made in the image of God, therefore we all have a sense of justice, we all have a sense of right and wrong, uh, we, but it's twisted and perverted by a force called sin. And it's always twisted and perverted by this force called sin. And first and foremost, primarily, this force called sin wants us to suppress the knowledge of God and run from the presence of God. Secondly, does, do people have innate value? Now, innate value is always expressed in relation to other things. Like you, when you buy something, you value the diamond necklace you bought your wife for her birthday over the whatever amount of money you <laughs> had to pay to, to get it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I've had a bad cold. Uh, so value is always in relation to other things. It's one of the things Christians struggle with, you know, the whole uh, pro-life versus pro-death culture. Um, I always say when you lead someone to Christ, they will become pro-life. It's inevitable because we believe that mankind is made in the image of God. Therefore, every life is sacred. Every life has value. But if you believe that man is just some fortuitous occurrence of, of atoms that happen to evolve uh, by chance or so forth, then you would not see life as having value. And you wouldn't necessarily think of human life as being any more important than amoebas or the, the common cold or a virus, let alone an animal or whatever. So people act, people's beliefs about such things, uh, whether, you know, whether Jaron's side, whether we should eliminate old people when they're not uh, productive anymore, comes out of their worldview and is usually more or less consistent with their worldview. If people are evolutionist, they have no basis to believe we have value. So, of course, they're not going to be pro-life. Now, the third thing you'll hear is all the time in psychology and sociology classes is are we more the product of heredity or the product of our environment, nurture, versus nature, or I should say nature versus nurture in the way I stated. If you believe that people are a product of heredity, then their moral nature, their value, uh, and so forth, comes out of her their heredity, which is the image of God, bound by this power called sin. If you believe that people are more controlled by their environment, then what you want to do is exchange the externals. Now, in religion, religion is very externalistic. The Pharisees wanted to change their environment. They, you know, when, when the immoral woman was, was crying on Jesus' feet and washing his, uh, uh, her, Jesus' feet with her hair, they said, this is an environmental issue. Like, if this man was holy, he should know not to be this close to that which is not holy. 
He should know not to allow these kind of people in his environment. You as a Christian shouldn't hang around such people. And you shouldn't, you know, go to those kind of places and so forth. So um, it's not a, in, in a religious worldview that's performance-based. It's about changing your externals. But in a biblical worldview, it's about changing you from the inside out and being recreated in the image of God. Susan, sneezing, huh? Was that Susan? <laughs> All right, so, thirdly, uh, every component worldview has a, um, as a component man in society. In other words, how should we treat each other? Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the second half of the Ten Commandments are all about that. The law of God is about how we should treat each other. You shouldn't kill. And Jesus helped us understand it the way he would, God would understand it. You shouldn't even be angry with your brother enough to devalue his life. You shouldn't lust enough to devalue another person. You shouldn't steal the hard-earned efforts of their labor. Make sure you write your congressman and tell him to notify the IRS on that one. Um, in other words, what you, what you believe about the nature of God, or who or what is ultimately real, and the nature of man, will dictate what you believe about law, and therefore economics, economic systems, political theories, philosophies of history, and so forth. If you truly believe in the eternal sovereign God, you'll have a positive linear view of history. If you have a reduced God that can only bail out the world by his second coming, you'll have kind of a negative view of history until the second coming boom, makes everything right, uh, you know, rather than a linear progression to that. So, um, Make sure you understand worldviews more than just the zeitgeist or the, you know, the spirit of the age or the general philosophical ideas of, of a time period. But make sure you understand that the, these three components, who or what is ultimately real, what is the intrinsic nature of man with regard to morality and value and so forth and heredity, and what is the nature of man in society, which is applying the Ten Commandments to all cultures. God actually raises up and tears down nations according to his eternal sovereign purposes, Acts 17. However, he also judges or blesses nations in regard to their obedience to his law, whether they know his law or not. The Bible makes that pretty clear. So when you see that, if you remember we did a, a teaching just a, four or five, six weeks ago about adoption, and almost everyone said, wow, now I see adoption in a bigger context because if you have kind of the reduced evangelical version of these things that doesn't make the law of God important, adoption is just a nice thing that we should do. But adoption is more than that. Adoption's all about dominion, covenant, succession. Adoption is about, is about the meek inheriting the earth. 
All right, so hopefully that's just uh, no extra charge, a little bit about worldview. So for the rest of today, uh, I'm going to uh, try to get to review, review what we did in element one, uh, the essential attributes of God, which you can always turn into a question. I always like to put these in a question. What is God like? That doesn't sound too spiritual, but it, it kind of gets right to the heart of it. What is God like? Now, first thing I want to submit to you is that all fallen people still have an idea of what God is like. They have, and they believe in God, whether they claim to be an atheist or not. That's why they say there's no atheist in foxholes. They're suppressing and running from this, and they have a very twisted, warped view of God that's full of accusations because the nature of sin and Satan himself is the accuser of the brethren. He's the, the accuser of our God day and night. And in Genesis 3, he accused God to Eve. So fallen men uh, have a view of God that's t- way too harsh, uh, just not who he is. And part of the communicating the gospel then is communicating by our lifestyle, by our actions, and with our proclamation and our words, who God really is. And what he's offering you in redemption in Christ. In fact, what he's commanding you to receive. Now, the first thing you want to note, the things I'm saying about suppressing the truth of God, you can read those, if you want to, in a little more thorough way by reading Paul's argument in Romans 1, 18 through 26, or go on to the end of the chapter. You can also see the same things in Paul in Romans 3, 10 through 12, in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. You can see it in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve's sin when they tried to hide themselves from the presence of God. Now, all men know there is a God, but fallen men suppress this. That's why the existence of God is never argued for in the Bible. It's just asserted. And I actually don't argue the existence of God when I'm sharing the gospel with people. Because they know. And I, you just, what you need to do is have your spirit full of the Holy Spirit and full of Scripture and speak to their spirit because their spirit knows that there's a God and they know that they're a sinner. They know that already. You just have to help them bring it to their conscious level. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, etc. So, uh, I'm not going to dwell on that point, but you, you need to know that all men know there is a God. And all men know that that God is moral. They have some, despite, you know, when you, uh, when you learn to play the guitar, you, you press down the strings and you get calluses on the tips of your finger. As Paul tells us in Romans 2, men's consciences are like that. So men's conscience is part of their spirit, so it's born, damaged, and outside of fellowship with God already. And then because of their sin nature and their willful choices to continue to sin, they, they callous their conscience over time. And so they have all kinds of warped ideas about right and wrong. Some, it can work both, uh, both directions. Sometimes people's conscience is too sensitive about things people, God doesn't care about. When a person has an extreme problem with that, we call that obsessive-compulsive disorder. Or uh, 
they can do a thing that uh, psychologists, uh, uh, Christian and, and secular psychologists are increasingly identifying as part of the millennial culture is an underdeveloped conscience. Uh, you know, uh, no sense of conscience because we've grown up in a, in a culture that right and wrong is determined about what's good for me. And there's no Ten Commandments on the walls of the public schools as there used to be or no moral compass for anyone. If you want to read an interesting take on it, there's a book by a secular psychologist called Character Disturbance. And he's saying that increasingly we have a narcissistic culture who has an underdeveloped sense of conscience. And of course, because when men are fallen, they will have some mixture of that obsessive compulsive disorder or that uh, character disturbance, underdeveloped conscience. Sometimes you'll have that in the same person. So they're very concerned about things God doesn't care anything at all about. And they're not at all concerned about the things God does care about. And in fact, religion tends to make you that way. You're all concerned about whether you drink beer or not, but not concerned about social justice or humility or, or the purpose for life or anything like that. You, you know, religion tends to make you strain out gnats and swallow camels. And most people who've been brought up in some form of Christianity today are generally struggling to, to get back to a biblical view of what's important to God or not. You know, that's what many of the prophets cried out for. You know, oh man, what is required of thee but humility, compassion, justice, Micah, and so forth. Quoted, of course, by Jesus. So just understand that, that you're, you know, you're speaking, men have a conscience and they have a, an intuitive knowledge that there is a God and that's part of their spirit but their spirit is outside of fellowship with God. That's what it means by dead. Not, it's not that it, their spirit doesn't exist. But you have to speak to their spirit if they're going to come alive in Christ. And sometimes they're, they're, there's things hardening them from being able to hear spiritually so much that you have to speak a word anointed by the Holy Spirit time and time and time again for a long time for God to wake them up. I'm not limiting God, but I am aware of our limitations sometimes. Sometimes you need to love them enough to keep them in, in fellowship and in a Bible study for a year or two, for, especially if they've been brought up in religion. All right. Point B, toward the bottom of the page. When you talk about the attributes of God, which I'm kind of trying to focus the most on the ones that are normally essential for getting started in the gospel. However, all you can, uh, one of the things you need to understand, now I'm for, um, just forgot the word, hopefully John can uh, help me remember this. There's a, an idea that you can't divide the attributes of God. Simplicity? Is that, yeah. So um, in theology, when you study the attributes of God, we can talk about God's justice or God's omnipotence or God's omniscience, or his triune nature, or his mercy, or many other attributes, right? We can read a whole book on the attributes of God. But God's uh, attributes are subject to the doctrine called simplicity, in the, or they're simple in the sense that they're non-divisible. 
So we can conceptualize this, much like I, can, I could divide Bradbury in my mind to the Bradbury I like to watch football with, to the Bradbury I like to do chores with, to the Bradbury I like to have a Bible study with or go walking with. But, but the truth is, he's Bradbury. Right? And you get the whole Bradbury or none, no Bradbury at all, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> that's, just, that's just the way it is. So, keep in mind when we talk about the attributes of God, that's, that is true of God's attributes. And because God is uh, infinite and not subject to any limitations nor sin, what I, my illustration of Bradbury actually breaks down at points that, my, that it doesn't with God. Sometimes we're inconsistent with ourselves, and we're incongruent. God is never inconsistent with himself. He's often inconsistent with our understanding of him, though. That's different. All right, so when you talk about God's attributes, one of the things you need to uh, understand is theologians call it the communicable attributes and the non-communicable attributes of God. Now, what I mean by this isn't communicable. It doesn't mean we can talk about them. It means you can catch it. You know, I have been battling with a cold for the last couple weeks, and maybe I shouldn't be here because uh, it's communicable. <laughs> so <coughs> you probably don't want me to kiss your baby. <laughs> I haven't been holding my granddaughter much lately uh, because I don't want to be communicable. Uh, and it doesn't mean I don't want to talk to you. It means I don't want you to get what I got. <laughs> um, so... Uh, you know, there's a center for disease control, and they, they think about not only is a disease communicable, but how is it communicable? That's important. We talk about the means of grace, an old-fashioned uh, theological concept, which I like to call the delivery systems of grace, or my, my invention. But, um, you know, God's Word in its various forms, written... We can read it, we can listen to it on audio, we can study it, we can look up the Greek words, we can hear good Bible teachers, uh, the expository Bible teachers or whatever. There's lots of ways to, to, that the means of God's grace, his word, his second means, his spirit, and his church interact and intertwine and, and impact our lives. And if we want to grow in grace, we want to keep ourselves in an atmosphere of those things uh, is all the time. Right? So that's the means by which God's attributes are communicable. But God has some attributes that are communicable and some that are not. And his non-communicable attributes are things like his omniscience. That is, he's all-knowing. Now, we have some pretty smart fellows in this church and lots of guys who are really oriented towards biblical studies and theology and we have, even have uh, maybe more than a half a dozen or so that know more biblical studies and theologies than, than most pastors know and so forth. But guess what? They're not getting close to, to catching the incommunicable attribute called omniscience. We see in a mirror dimly, and we understand in things dimly, and we see the tip of the iceberg of the things of God, and that's it. And if we look back to how much we've grown... 
it can look like a considerable distance. But if we look forward into the being of God, we realize we're just starting on this journey and we're but babes in Christ that have just scratched the surface. And it will always be thus so. We can journey, we will, that's why Ephesians 2 talks about how in the ages to come we'll praise the unfathomable greatness of his grace because for in all the ages to come, we'll understand his gracious choice of us better and better and better. And we'll be like, you know, how when you think about God's grace and you realize what kind of sinner you really are and you go, he chose me? What? You know, like we'll be having those kind of moments forever. You should probably get patting on your forehead so you don't hurt yourself. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> you know, um, maybe we'll have padding built in. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, um, or maybe we'll, you know, learn not to hit ourselves when, we, when we're amazed. But uh, just kidding. All right. So the non-communicable attributes of God are things you can't catch. 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, don't think there's anyone that fits these characteristics, invisible, I think there's several invisible people here this morning, <laughs> no, no, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. So, one of the things is that God is eternally existent in three persons, it's called the Trinity. That is probably... The, could possibly be the most important doctrine of Christianity because from it we get the idea of the one and the many, uh, the unity and diversity of things. We are one body of Christ with many members. We, you know, every family is one family with many members. And, and this principle runs through everything in all creation, body politics, etc. The omni attributes, uh, omniscience, all knowing, omnipresent. You know, you can't be two places at once. In fact, that's why people, there's actually a Geico commercial now where the little lizard dude, the gecko, that's it, you know, is in two states at once because he's on the border of Tennessee and Virginia. So, you know, like, you can't, can't be two places at once. Yet God can be all the places. Sometimes when we're worshiping on Sunday morning, I like to think about, like, God is attending and not spread out like peanut butter thinly throughout the universe. But the full being of God is present in our midst as we worship him this morning, along with tens of thousands of other Christian bodies around the world. That's one of my favorite thoughts during worship time. <laughs> like, wow, God is attending a lot of worship meetings this morning, but I can only attend one at a time. He's, you know, he's omnipotent. As I get older and older, I now work out with little dumbbells because <laughs> I'm a wimp. But, uh, <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Because <clears throat> when you're young, you just can't be, you, you know, like the glory of young men is their strength, right? And the glory of old men is their gray hair. I just wish I had some hair. But what I, little I do is gray. <laughs> so, and I'm past the age where I care about, like, who can lift the car up or whatever nonsense. Our God is a transcendent creator. Now, that is one that you're going to really have to make sure you're talking to people who understand that issue. Why? Be, 
that why is there so much battleground over creation versus evolution? And there's a battleground over transcendence. Because if he's the god of the rock or the so forth, lots of lots of naturalistic religions like to worship nature. That's why the ultimate thing is the environment. Not saying that we shouldn't care about the environment. We should. But we don't need to worship it. So flip over, for by him all things are created. I can't develop many of these very well because we'll be out of time. Judge, lawgiver, covenant maker. God is a God of covenant, and he's not capricious. He's usually not what people have in their mind and heart to think he is. You know, there's all kinds of accusations about God, and unfortunately we Christians sometimes uh, play into that by presenting a legalistic caricature of who God is. God doesn't really care about a lot of the issues Christians make important. He, de- he doesn't care about how long your hair is, you know, or, or what, you know, so many, you know, so many people major and minor issues. Don't strain out gnats and swallow camels with unbelievers or you'll never reach them. Because they sometimes have an internal radar that says, wait a minute, I know God's not concerned about that. Now, when, with that uh, judge, lawgiver, covenant maker, a very unpopular subject that's uh, written to the right on point four there, the New Testament gospel always comes with a warning of impending judgment. Nobody speaks about judgment today. And that's a very, very unpopular topic. But look at Acts 17 when Paul is talking to the Athenians. We, we might go, well, I would be bold enough to talk about judgment in, the, in a judgment to come or in the, in a, if I was in a fundamentalist church or something. Paul talks about the judgment to come with the Athenians who he's just had to explain that there's one transcendent creator God instead of their polytheistic uh, non-transcendent gods. And he tells them that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. Commands. <laughs> That's pretty bold. Everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If you can't defend the resurrection of the dead uh, in Christ, by the way, um, that's problematic. You should, be, you should be able to really make the case for the resurrection to anybody. It's not that hard to learn it. There's lots and lots of books on it. A few of them are on our foundational beginning book list and so forth. It's, you know, the resurrection of Christ would stand up in a court of law. It's a very documentable, provable fact. Now, don't overestimate what that will do because Jesus himself tells us in Luke 16, the parable of Abraham and Lazarus, that if they don't believe the law and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone raises from the dead. So just because they know that there's evidence for the resurrection doesn't mean they'll necessarily repent, nor if they see miracles. But those who God is drawing, no one can come lest the Father draws them. Those who God is drawing, and, and he has many people in this city, as he told Paul, those who he's doing, uh, these things will have impact on. So, uh, of course, 
the fact that God is, uh, oh, Hebrews 9.27 is one that everyone should memorize, by the way. Number five, sovereign, gracious, redeemer. Uh, he's in control, and he's offering you loving reconciliation. Memorize a bunch of scriptures about the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 and so forth. I put Jeremiah 29 there because that's a favorite one for a lot of people. Because, uh, you know, God being a gracious redeemer and, a, and covenantly faithful is actually the basis for every Christian should walk with a lot of hope in their heart. Not every Christian that you're working with and trying to help grow is filled with hope. Many people have lots of problems in the area of hopelessness and discouragement and, and feeling like I'm inevitable to fail and so forth. But they're not getting that from the truths of God's word. And so one of the things you want to always be pastoring people in terms of is that they could be set free to really live a life that hopes in God. Because that is reality. Now, then the communicable attributes, uh, I could, there, you know, of course I could list lots of other non-communicable attributes, that he's immutable and so forth. Um, his communicable attributes are the ones we can catch. He's personal. One of the things, one of the reasons I rejected sort of the megachurch approach that grew up in the 80s out of the church growth movement of the 70s is because it measures all success and how many butts go through the turnstile and sit in your pews. And I, I refuse to, to treat people like that. You need to measure your success in how much have I helped this person. You know, one of the things you'll, you'll, you will not succeed as a, as a Christian father or mother if you don't understand that. The, the love, the personableness, the depth of your marriage is the number one thing that will impact your children. Number two thing that will impact your ch children is how much you see the personableness of them and understand that they're your first calling. And if they, and because of work or other ambitions or even ministry or whatever, you never have time for them if they don't really know what makes their father tick and their mother tick and, and all this kind of stuff, you're, you're going to lose their hearts. Believe me, we, we live in a time when everything is pushing towards impersonableness. You know, the government knows you by your social security number not by your name. And the Bible is very clear that God knows you and calls you by name, which means a lot more than he knows that you're John Gray. It means that he knows every and cares about everything about you. A name in the Bible is signif significant of everything that you are. When it says he knows you by name, it means that he's got you covered more than you got you covered. Fatherhood is another uh, important attribute of God. Merciful and loving and so forth. Um, I've got a couple places listed there at the end of this section uh, that you can turn to um, it, um, if you want to study more of the attributes of God. 
There's uh, one book by A.W. Tozier listed there. A.W. Pink has one that's more dry and reformed, you know, really not as passionate, you might say, but it's still very good. Um, John Frame, of course, if you really want to get deeper theologically. Systematic theology, people who are taking our systematic theology class or who have taken it, you know, there's a section on the attributes of God, uh, chapters 9 through 17 of that book. Uh, last thing I just want to talk about a minute, and I've already touched on this, is effectiveness in evangelism. And I just want to kind of mention a, a couple things, and you could review the, please take the time to review these notes, especially if you actually want to become a person who regularly leads people to Christ. You know what? Uh, on a, in a sense, being that kind of person is a gift, but in another sense, it's also a, a gift that has to be developed. And frankly, I think most of God's gifts come to us in seed form, and then we really have to kind of develop them into skills. And so, um, one of the things, if you want to be effective evangelistically, learn to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in ways that look more like the New Testament and less like American Christianity. Two, know the Bible in ways that look, look like the early church or the ancient Jews and less like American Christianity. Memorize hundreds of scriptures. But three, speak to people spirit to spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. And ask God, I have never, you know, I have been very privileged by God to lead a handful of people every year to Christ who go on to be mature Christians. I was very blessed last night. I was asked to come back and speak at the 30th anniversary uh, of a church I started 32 years ago. And, um, you know... There is nothing more precious in life than to be privileged by God to lead one person after another person into the things of God. I'd give everything else for that. I, that's why I live in such a crummy house. No, I mean, it, because really, what else matters? Once you start tasting that, like who cares what kind of car you drive or what kind of TV you have or anything, none of it matters. But you can develop that. And some of that in includes, you have to prioritize that. You know, when I read the book, The Disciplined Life, my first 10 years of being a Christian, I read it once every year because I was a very undisciplined person. And one of the things he says, if you're going to become an expert in New Testament literature, you've got to say goodbye to the comics forever. And what he means by that is you have to prioritize becoming the man or woman of God that you're called to be. I'm not preaching works. This doesn't make you any more justified before God or righteous before God. But it has to do with apprehending that for which he apprehended you, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3. Are you, are you chasing vigorously everything God called you to become? Are you arming yourself with with these things? Are you becoming a Jedi warrior, so to speak, for the kingdom? Are you putting in the time? You know, the Luke Skywalker thing where he leaves in the middle of his training is crap. It's a heresy. <laughs> and then he still goes on to become a great Jedi warrior. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, 
Charles Spurgeon said, had he known that he was going to have 25 more years with the Lord, he would have spent the first 20 in disciplined, diligent preparation. Jesus prepared 30 years for a three-and-a-half-year mission. So, and we just, like, have to go out and save the world today. I Start, start in your prayer closet memorizing scriptures and pouring over the scriptures and crying out to God and, and getting to know the heart of God and the ways of God and the eternal decrees and plans of God. Know who you're representing Deeply, completely, not that you could ever be complete in the sense of exhaustively. Not, not, I want to change subjects because I'm out of time. Um, besides this whole thing about the power of God, you, you know, move in miracles. There, you, that is normal Christianity. The gifts of the Spirit didn't start, stop with the apostles. That just doesn't bear up to the witness of church history. Over tens of thousands of Christians have testified to the Holy Spirit doing miracles through every century of church history. Everywhere on the planet. Learn to move in that dimension by the grace of God. Lastly, the, the whole passage in Thessalonians there. Um, my favorite part of it is uh, in verse 8 where it says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you, share with, as the, share with you as ESV, not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Greek really is our suitcase, our souls. Because you had become very dear to us. The last thing I want to say is, you, if you want to transcend from what they call a decision-making model of evangelism, where you occasionally get someone to pray a sinner's prayer, and a discipleship model of making evangelism, where they go on to be all they were called to be in Christ, you have to, you, you have to live by that verse. We were willing to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. Are you willing to impart your fortune, your, your food, your house, your timetables, your, your goals, your aspirations. Are you really willing to, to make them that important? It's all about love. And people know whether you're loving them with the love of Christ that's beyond what a human could love someone with or not. They know. Amen.